Now, I trust you may have caught some of the Winter Olympics. We loved it, from skiing to snowboarding to uh, bobsleighing to ice skating to curling, whatever that was, never quite figured it out, as well as the ice hockey, uh, which was fun, fast, and furious. Teams made up of three forwards, two defenders, and one goalie, who all had to play their part to work together in order for the team to win. That's the purpose. Now, personally, I rooted for Finland, and they, for the first time, took the gold, uh, which was great. Now, as a church, we too are a team with a task. We are God's team involved with a gospel task. And that's what Paul unpacks for us in this passage. We are partners with a purpose. We are together for the gospel. So what does God command us here to be and to do? Now, I'm going to unpack a few of those things this morning as we work our way through this passage. Now, first up, we need to understand that God's commands are to be kept in spite of circumstances and uncertainties, whether it's sunshine or rain. Verse 27, whatever happens. In other words, something about the future here is uncertain. And if you want to know what that is, you just need to read on. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence. In other words, Paul wants to visit in person, but he can't. It's not certain that he'll be able to anytime soon because he's in prison and he's facing possible death. So Paul says... To live is Christ, verse 21, to die is gain. Living means fruitful labor. Death means glory. Paul's torn, though. He's better off dead, but the Philippians are better off with him alive. He's better dead because he's in glory, but they are better off with him still breathing and serving them. Which makes Paul think, verse 25, that he may hang around just a little longer though he simply can't be certain. And so, whatever happens, verse 27, whether I see you or I don't see you, which means God's commands here are not dependent on what happens to Paul or what happens to them. It isn't tied to circumstances. Paul is certain about glory, that death brings gain, yet he's uncertain about what tomorrow brings. The certainty of our eternal future should affect how we live now. What's coming, what's up ahead, should affect how we live now and shape it. However, the uncertainty of our immediate future should have no effect whatsoever. Uncertainties, circumstances, should make no difference to our Christian commitment and conduct. Now, to those in our church family who serve in the military, we want to say thank you very much for doing so. For those who serve and have served, thank you. Well, as a young man, I too served. Uh, I served as a combat medic. And I recall in training that when you sprained your ankle, that put you on light duty, uh, meaning your commanding officer couldn't make you uh, march or run or lift heavy objects. Light duty meant you got off the hard work. They wouldn't put you into battle or on the front line. You'd get a 
bit of a holiday. You'd, you'd get to take it easy. Though as followers of Jesus, when circumstances turn bad, when we sprain our ankle, when the future's uncertain, when the going gets tough, God never gives light duty. Because we're all in the full-time ministry, serving Jesus 7, 24, 24-7, 365. We're always in the battle. We don't get time off. There's no holiday from following Jesus. You and me were called to follow Christ, our commanding officer, wholeheartedly, unreservedly, joyfully, obediently, no matter the cost, no matter what happens. Which brings me to my second point. Whatever happens, verse 27, conduct yourselves in a manner. Now, it's a little lost in our English translation, but this conduct is specifically to do with being citizens of heaven. Conduct yourselves. Live is literally behave as citizens. That's literally what it's saying, Uh, which is actually how it's translated in other English versions, such as the ESV and the footnote, and the CSV, the Christian Standard Bible. Now, I only mention that because it's really important. This verse launches the central section of the letter that runs all the way through to chapter 4, verse 1, where the language of behaving as citizens is mentioned again. Citizenship frames the body of this letter. Now, last week, Hamish helpfully showed us that partnership is the gospel thread of the letter. We're partners, we're, uh, we're par- we're, which is business language. We're partners in gospel business. And yet, side by side with partnership is citizenship. We're in gospel business together, out there in the rough and tumble of the world. And yet, we're not of this world. Our citizenship, chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, suffice to say, I think Americans are warm, friendly, and exuberant. The British are polite, reserved, uh, with a stiff upper lip. Aussies are, and I won't try to do the accent, but Aussies are earthy, easygoing, laid back. Now, every nation uh, is associated with general traits or characteristics. Christians should be associated with Christian characteristics to behave as the heavenly citizens that we are. Philippi was in Macedonia but it was a Roman colony. Rome ruled the world. And a Roman citizen was highly prized because Roman citizenship was a passport to privilege, to status, to success. Now, I'd guess almost everyone here would be Australian citizens. You would have a passport that states your first name, your family name, your date of birth, your place of birth. Well, for those who follow Jesus, we have a much better passport that reads, member of God's family, born again, citizen of heaven. Christians in Philippi and Brisbane should keep that in mind. We're not living for this world, but the next. We're merely passing through as pilgrims or refugees. We belong to God's kingdom. We belong to Jesus. We're citizens of heaven. 
Now, Marika and I and the family, we arrived in Australia four years ago with the expectation that we'd be permanent residents within six months and then citizens a few years thereafter. It's been a long, complicated and frustrated journey. We're not yet permanent residents. There's been lots of rules and red tape and rule changes and many hoops to jump through and lots of costs. Now, let me say that we're very thankful for our family here, especially Rick and Kathy, for all their hard work done towards that end. And we're very thankful that the church has prayed and paid. But here's the good news. The good news for us and the good news for all of us. That is that heavenly, citizen, citizen, heavenly citizenship is not something we earn or merit. We don't sit an exam. There's no red tape. We don't need an immigration agent. And there's no cost. It's a gift from God, won at the cross by Jesus. The King of Heaven died to make rebels bound for hell into citizens of heaven. And that heavenly citizenship ought to shape our earthly conduct. Yes, to die is gain, heaven awaits. But until then, you and me, we're heavenly ambassadors representing Jesus. We live for Christ, not this world. So, whatever happens, live, behave as heavenly citizens. And for such conduct, there's a standard. Something to live up to. Uh, verse 27, to be worthy of. Now, Standards Australia... Um, applies strict standards on various products from cars to kitchen appliances to washing powder. Things have to measure up to meet the criteria, the standard, which is how the word worthy is used here in verse 27. It refers to balancing a scale. What you put on should measure or balance up to what's on the other side. So what's on the other side? Be worthy of, verse 27, read it for yourself. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Our lives should live up to the gospel. A gospel that both instructs and motivates our conduct. The gospel says, live like this and here's why. You see, Jesus came to serve, made himself nothing, humbled himself, became obedient even obedient to death on a cross. Jesus died for you. He died for Eric and Norton. He died for Martin and John. He died for Chelsea. He died for Jody. He died for each of you and me. Which motivates, doesn't it? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, as we sang. Because the gospel of Christ drives, demands, motivates that we live in a manner that measures up. We live for him who died for us. Though the gospel is not simply a huge incentive to live for Jesus, it's also the ultimate example of how to live like Jesus. The gospel motivates and models Christian living. It shows us how. So... If you look down to chapter 2, uh, it says, Therefore if, verse 1, Therefore if you're united with Christ, if comforted from his love, if you share in the Spirit, 
Basically, it's saying, if you're a Christian, then, verse 2, have the same mind, the same love. Be united in spirit. One mind, one love. One loving, focused family. It looks like what? Verse 3. Here's what having the same mind and same love looks like. Do nothing, verse 3, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. The problem with my heart, and God says it's a problem of every human heart, is the problem of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness puts us, our interests, in the driving seat. Self-righteousness makes us blind to our own faults and yet crystal clear on the sins of others. It makes us quick to forgive ourselves, excuse ourselves, but unforgiving toward others. But in humility, value others above yourself. Just imagine if we collectively lived that out. Humble, other person-centered, putting others above, putting their needs first. And don't just think of perhaps the person you're left or right, but think of the person in the church you don't really get on with, that maybe irritates you or rubs you up the wrong way. Imagine if you put them, them above yourself, valued them above yourself, and sought their best and their interests. Well, then follows in verse 5 an early Christian song that shows how Jesus lived, and it's the model to follow. He gave himself, serving, sacrificially. Such amazing love demands we live in the same way. We're going to hear more about that next week as Sam preaches to us. In the office, I noticed this past week that Hamish had a couple of rubber bracelets around one of his wrists. And they had the letters on them, WWJD. I think our internet has gone down. Has it gone down? Thanks. Great. Thanks. Paul, Paul solved the problem. WWJD, what would Jesus do? We're not to ask what others can do for me, or what, what can others do for me, but we're to ask, what can I do for others? We're not to think, do unto others as they do unto me, but to think, do unto others as Jesus has done unto me. Because Christian conduct copies the original. WWJD. And so, What's God done for us in Christ? What he's done for us is both a motivation to live for Jesus and a model of how to live for Jesus, or how to live like Jesus. Lives lived in light of the gospel, worthy of the gospel. Here we go, so what will the result of that be collectively for us? 
Well, look again at verse 27. In the middle of the verse, there's a little word, then. Behave as heavenly citizens, live worthy of the gospel, and then, whether I see you or not, then I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit. Stand firm in the power of the spirit, the spirit that indwells us personally and collectively. We stand firm. We stand the ground on which our feet have been placed by the grace of God. We stand where we're planted, on gospel ground in the spirit. Though, what's it practically look like for us to stand firm? Well, in this passage, there's two verbs or doing words that describe what that means. The first is in verse 27. Standing firm in the one spirit, striving together. That's one word. The word literally means to co-athleticize. Co, side by side, together. Athleticize, to contend, to exert, to strive. Uh, which fits with the image of a rugby scrum. Uh, arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, pushing, sweating, putting bodies on the line, all in the cause of victory. The cause here, in verse 27, is striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Now, please note, it's not striving for our faith, something subjective and personal, sort of keep going as a Christian, keep on keeping on. That's true, but it's not true of this statement. No, it's that we are to strive for the faith for objective gospel truth, for public gospel truth. That is, we stand up for Jesus. So this isn't about holding on to Jesus. It's about holding out Jesus, speaking about Jesus, speaking for Jesus, speaking of Jesus. Well, that's the first verb. There's another verb which further explains standing firm, and that's in verse 28. Striving together for the faith without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Standing firm will mean having courage. So here's a reality check. Following Jesus isn't a picnic. It's not the secret to health, wealth, and easy living. It's not the secret to popularity and being well-liked. Quite the opposite. Because verse 28 There'll be those who oppose you. You see, opposition comes with just being Christian. If you're not willing to own the name of Jesus or speak of him, then, well, easy days. That's cruisy Christianity. But if we're going to live the normal Christian life, being partners in the gospel then we'll be well acquainted with opposition. I think this is increasingly the challenge for Christians in the West. And I, I think it's a challenge for us here in Australia, the so-called lucky country, which I worry is increasingly becoming unlucky for those who openly own and publicly follow Jesus. Now, if you're anything like me, 
you're going to be asking, how can I be without fear? It comes naturally to me. I'm scared of what others will think or say and do. I'm afraid of injustice, of slander, of ridicule. So what's going to give you and me courage? Well, for one thing, reading the signs. Standing firm for Jesus and being opposed for doing so is a clear sign you're saved. While for those who oppose Jesus and his followers, it's a clear sign they're not. This is a sign, verse 28, a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. So when you raise your head above the parapet, you'll be opposed by those who reject Jesus, which clearly confirms which side each person is on, which is for us an encouragement. But what else will add courage? Verse 29, it's a little surprising. It's knowing that it has been granted or gifted to us on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. See, suffering for Jesus is a gift. It's a privilege, an honor, which should encourage us. So suffering shows whose side you're on. Suffering is a gift. And thirdly, in suffering, God's on your side. I'm sure you've faced a situation where others were hostile and injustice was a likely outcome. I remember facing such a situation. And then someone with power and influence texted me, I've got your back, which was really supportive. When you're feeling outgunned and afraid, it's strengthening to know there's someone significant you can count on. Though on a human level, people can fail to come through for you or may simply lack the power to do so. But not God. Jesus says to you and me, I've got your back. And I've got the power, and I keep my promises. I've got your back. I'll never leave, never forsake. My spirit indwells, my strength is yours, my power is made perfect in weakness. So be strong and be courageous. Whatever ridicule or threats or injustice or slander or persecution comes our way, as citizens of heaven, in a world hostile to the gospel, gospel, we're to stand firm, to live courageously for Jesus, speaking up no matter the cost, owning the name of Jesus even though others will disown us, speaking the truth in love even though it may mean being called hateful and intolerant. So we stand firm. We courageously contend for the faith. And then very importantly and finally, we're all in this together. We're all in this together. Is that how it goes? We're all in this together. We stand firm, verse 27, in the one spirit, striving together as one. Christianity is a team sport. There's no place for lone rangers. If we're to accomplish our purpose, we need to play as partners. If we're to complete our task, we need to play as a team. Divided we fall, united we stand. 
one for all, all for one, all one. Same mind, verse 2, same love, one in spirit, of one mind. We're one family. We're all in this together. Team MPC, Church United, loving one another, contending for the cause of Christ, together for the gospel. Now let me say and affirm that being on Team MPC brings me much joy. I'm encouraged to know that there are plans afoot that on Sunday afternoons there'll be a group of people sitting together praying and on Tuesdays and at growth groups. I'm encouraged that youth leaders and youth are going to get stuck into God's word even if perhaps not this afternoon due to the rain. I'm encouraged by Ted and Glenn and others who do our gardens and everyone who comes to help out at our working bees under John's direction so that our facilities are a welcoming environment. I'm encouraged by the kids' church leaders, partnering in proclaiming to our children the good news. I'm encouraged by Gary, Elaine, Margaret, and many others on our visitation care team, seeking to love, support, and point people to Jesus. I'm encouraged by Tracy and Taylor and Katie and Sandy, sharing God's love with mums at playgroup. I'm encouraged by those mentoring others by reading the Bible one-to-one. I'm encouraged to serve in a church side-by-side with young and old and in a church which is committed to expressing that even more and better. I'm encouraged by Ian, Wayne, and the comm team who focus their minds on, on practical and financial issues to help MPC to effectively advance the gospel. I'm encouraged to know how people at school and in the workplace are befriending others and speaking about Jesus gently, wisely, respectfully. And I'm so encouraged by our mission partners. Keith and Marion discipling students in PNG. Nathan and Tomoka sharing the gospel with those in Japan. Jeremy and Mosaics sharing God's love with refugees and the homeless. And I'm encouraged and humbled by the message I received on Friday from an old missionary couple in the Ukraine. The email from Timothy reads, and I quote, This is quite possibly our last means of correspondence for some time. War is imminent and the consequences dreadful. Young Ukrainian men from 16 years of age are being called up to serve in the military. A major cyber attack is happening. Our local currency is in free fall. Rhoda and I are not leaving. How can we? As an elder in the church, my responsibility is to shepherd at all times. It would be a terrible testimony to get up and leave the believers. We hope to turn the church hall into a place of shelter to accommodate and feed the believers who will face many a hardship. And Timothy goes on to write, God is about to give us, gift us, a great opportunity. No matter the circumstances, note, whatever happens. He's about to give us, gift us a great opportunity to show our Christian faith practically and to reach out into our community with the gospel. 
Rhoda and I may have to move out of our apartment as we, as we are close to the military airfield. And on the 14th floor of our apartment block, we have the Ukrainian secret police. As we close this email, the military jets can be heard overhead, and we covet your prayers. We are not any braver than you, but confident we are where God would expect us to be. The Global Universal Church. The church here in Mechi, here at MPC, together as one for the gospel. All of us different, with unique gifts, unique opportunities, unique responsibilities and relationships. Together, partners with a purpose. And so, whatever happens, regardless of circumstances or uncertainties, Let's behave as citizens of heaven, worthy of the gospel, living for Jesus and living like Jesus. Let us stand firm in God's strength, having courage to speak up for Jesus. And let's do it all together as one, partners in the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, together for the gospel. Amen.